Will you please rise if you're able to, for the today's scripture reading? Today's scripture reading is Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Jackie, for reading our lesson and our gratitude certainly to the Candler Corlears uh, who are with us in Music City today. They were earlier at West End uh, at the 845 service and Dr. David Daniel is their director. We welcome you. Uh, some of you, no doubt, will be graduating in May. How many of you are finishing this? Congratulations. <laughs> Wonderful. Is, yeah. I can assure you they've earned it, your applause, so grateful. Is there a Brad in the group? Brad, are you here? Uh, greetings from Andrew, our son, who told us to look for Brad. Nice to meet you, sir. It's good to see you. Uh, we have a, a chapel who graduated from Candler in 1955. I finished in 85, and then we upgraded, and our son in 2015 graduated. So we feel your pain today, and we know where you're coming from, and we welcome you. And our regards to Dean Jan Love, and it's, a, it's just such a, a meaningful thing to have you with us today. Uh, during these Lenten days. Uh, if you have just joined us today and have not been here on these last three, four Sundays together, we're right in the middle of a series on the passion that we're calling cross-training. And we've read again, this is the fourth lesson now, we've read from the earliest recorded gospel, the gospel according to St. Mark. And what you may have noted in Mark's account of the passion is that Mark says very little about how the cross affects Jesus, but a whole lot about how the cross affects others surrounding Jesus. And so today we've looked at the impact of the cross on an innocent bystander, an African Jew from Libya whose name was Simon of Cyrene who had come into Jerusalem almost 900 miles from Libya for the celebration of the Passover and gets caught up in the Via Dolorosa and feels the tap of a Roman blade, a Roman soldier commissioning him to bear the cross of Jesus. The cross affected that man. We talked about Judas Iscariot 
who betrayed Jesus in the place where he prayed with a kiss, trying to press Jesus into revolution rather than sacrifice. And then we talked about Simon Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, who denied him in the garden three times in the crunch. And what you note is in Mark's gospel, the passion of Jesus evokes a range of emotions. It does in all of us, doesn't it? From a deep compassion to an abject fear when you think about it. At this point in the story, in the reading that we've read, Jesus now seems to be completely alone. In fact, the apostles, the twelve, have deserted him. They fled for their lives. And verse 34 indicates, and this is very painful, that Jesus even now feels abandoned by God. In fact, you hear it in his cry of anguish. It's the only one of the seven last words that you find in Mark's gospel. My God, my God, why? Why me? And yet, in verses 40 and 41 of chapter 15, Mark suggests that Jesus is not alone. There was a small group, just a handful of women, huddled together near the cross who stuck with him. It's interesting to me that the Gospel of Mark gives these women very little press. In fact, you never see their names until the last two chapters. Now, there were also women looking on from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and of Salome. They used to follow him and provide him, says the Scripture, in Galilee, and there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when you look at the Scripture, you notice that we have underscored and italicized three words. Notice the first two, follow, to follow, and provide. Whenever you see those words in the Scripture, it denotes discipleship. And that's odd, particularly in the context of women. Because in the first century, it is, of course, as you know, predominantly patriarchal in its culture. Women were forbidden to follow their rabbi. This was a male privilege. It's interesting that you find in the writing of Rabbi Eliezer, first century, he says this, and I quote, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her obscenity. And so when you see these words, follow and provide in the context of women, it's rather strange. And Mark actually names names. Luke does the same, but it's so like Luke. Dr. Luke, always looking out for people in the margins, mentions these women much earlier in his gospel in the section that we call the travel narrative. That's in Luke 8. Now, Jesus went on through the towns and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary Magdalene, from whom seven, seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was actually Herod's CFO. I've always thought it's humorous that Herod, unbeknownst to Herod, was bankrolling the ministry of Jesus through his wife. And Susanna and many others, women, 
who provided for them out of their resources. These women, like the 12 men, were with Jesus. And there's the other word. Whenever you see the word with, it conveys discipleship. The first time you see it is Mark 3:14. After an all-night prayer meeting, Jesus had been praying all night, he comes down the next morning and appoints 12 men whom he named apostles, listen, to be with him. That's discipleship, to walk with him, to talk with him, to live with him, to eat with him, to breathe with him, to study with him. Discipleship begins with with. Sky Jethany is an author who's written a book recently called With. It's interesting to me that the gospel begins with with. What Sky Jethany says in his book is that it's not enough to live for God. We're called to live with God. It's not enough to live under God. We're called to live with God. In fact, you see it early on in John chapter 1 in the incarnation, and the word became flesh, which means God with us. Not for us, with us. And discipleship begins when you are with God. Discipleship begins with me, with Jesus. I think about Acts 4.13. It's a life verse. You remember that story where Peter and John one day healed a lame man at the gate called Beautiful in Jerusalem in the name of Jesus, which they had been ordered never to use the name of Jesus. And they're brought in chains to the temple police. And there in front of the Sanhedrin, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and recognized that they were uneducated, ordinary men. They were amazed, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. Did you know that it is apparent when you have been with Jesus? And it's apparent when we haven't. You can see it. And you could see it in these women. They had been with Jesus. They provided for him. The word provide, diakonos, it means deacon. It literally means they were waiting tables. They had the gift of hospitality. They were serving Jesus. They, they waited on Jesus. Anybody love country music in the house? Do you all love country music? Yeah, you do? Well, you should. You're in Music City, so welcome. You know the name Brad Paisley. Brad Paisley's a songwriter who's made famous a song. It's one of my new favorites. It's called Waiting on a Woman. You ever, you got to say that last word, Waiting on a Woman is the way he says it. It's about a guy who has a girlfriend and he's always waiting on her. They get married. He's a husband. He's always delayed everywhere he goes because he's waiting on his wife. And the hook line in the whole song that makes it worth hearing is, she'll take her time, but I don't mind waiting on a woman. <laughs> but it's interesting in this story, there's a lyric about the women waiting on a man. Uh oh 
They're waiting on Jesus. Discipleship includes waiting on, serving, supporting, providing for Jesus. And these women did it in Galilee all the way to the cross. Now, I don't have to tell you, you know, that the inclusion of women with the twelve was absolutely scandalous. In fact, their addition to the lead team of Jesus got Jesus in hot water with the religious professionals. And Jesus was always in hot water with the scribes and the Pharisees. He already had a bad reputation. You know that because they said of him, and I quote, he is a glutton and a drunkard because he's a friend to sinners and tax collectors. Have you ever noticed the group that Jesus put together of disciples? It was a pretty motley crew. I mean, he had men and women. That's a no-no. He had blue collar and white collar. He had a tax collector and a zealot in the same small group. He, in other words, he had an IRS agent and someone from Antifa in the same group. People that wouldn't be caught dead together, living together, because they had one thing in common, Jesus. That's all they had. They had been touched by Jesus. They had been healed by Jesus. They had been forgiven by Jesus. They had been picked out by Jesus. They had been discipled by Jesus. And somehow that common denominator made all their other distinctions irrelevant. Ben Quash, who is professor of Christianity and the arts at King's College in London, once had this to say about the body, the church. The church is not an interest group. Its members don't come together because they are all like each other or even because they like each other, but because they believe that they're all God's redeemed children. Indeed, he says, if they try to walk away from each other, they will meet each other again at the foot of the cross through which Christ has broken down the barriers between his children and made them all one whether they like it or not. One of the more radical sagas of discipleship that I've ever seen is, is in Luke's gospel. You only find this story in Luke. It's in chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. You remember, Jesus and friends are guests at a little dinner party at the home of two sisters. I call them the M&M sisters. Mary and Martha, siblings of Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. One of the ladies, you remember, Martha, does all the fixing in the kitchen, while the other sister, Mary, remains in the parlor, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Whenever you see that phrase, sitting at the feet of Jesus, you know it's a discipleship term. That's the posture of a disciple. She is listening to his teaching. She's got her concordance. She's taking notes. She's savoring every word. She's got the Greek lexicon, I'm sure. And Martha's beef with Mary is not that she has left her to do all the work, 
but that she is neglecting her gender role. That's the problem. Martha is a product of her first century culture. She knows that if you're a woman, you don't recline with a group of men in the study around a rabbi. She's breaking the cultural code. She's shaming her family. Mary is acting like a man. Martha does what she's supposed to do. She brings her complaint to the alpha male in the house, namely Jesus, expecting him to take action. And this is where it gets humorous. Martha not only voices her petition, her complaint to Jesus, but notice she also tells Jesus what to do about it. Some of us pray like that. Lord, we've got a problem, and here's what you need to do. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's the way Martha did. Jesus, you need to tell my sister to get in here and help me. And notice Jesus doesn't get on to Mary. He turns to Martha. Martha, Martha. (laughs) He repeats her name. That's a gentle way of scolding her. It's like when your mother says, Davis, Davis. Martha, Martha. Sherry, Sherry. You are distracted. You are troubled about too many cares. Mary has chosen the main course, the better portion, and I'm not about to take that away from her. Jesus not only permits her discipleship, he endorses it, and that's radical. Martha did what she was expected to do, and Mary did what she needed to do. Luke says that some of these women had actually been healed by Jesus in Galilee, and now they are seeing Jesus hurting in Jerusalem. And just as Jesus was there for them, they are here for him. And while the others flee, they're there. In fact, please notice that after his death, after Jesus' death, death, they'll still be with him, waiting on him, grieving him, making arrangements for him, anointing him, caring. And I, for one, find it very fitting that the last to leave the cross are the first to arrive at the empty tomb. All four narratives agree on this, that Jesus first appeared to the women and commissioned them to preach the good news to the men. Celsus, the second century pagan critic of the church, discounted completely the gospel and the empty tomb because he said, and I quote, it was first pronounced by hysterical women who could not be trusted. Origen, the early church father, replied by saying there was more than one woman who saw the risen Christ and that they were actually more composed than the men. And so it is with the disciples. It's often the ones you least expect who become the messenger. It's the unlikely who becomes the preacher. When you have been with Jesus, when you sit at his feet, You will not simply do what is expected. You'll do what you need to do 
and what Jesus needs you to do. That is the better portion. That's the main course. That's the mission. One other word. My favorite teachers are English teachers. Second, philosophy. Third, music. I love English teachers. I believe that people who understand the language understand the culture. And I, for one, believe that words are very, very important. With a word you can create, with a word you can tear apart, with a word you can build up, with a word you can destroy. Genesis says, in the beginning, God spoke and life happened. The psalmist says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all their hosts simply by the breath of his mouth. I love words. When I was a teenager, I was not a very good student. I was not very disciplined. I wasn't really interested in academics. But my junior year, I was 16, I found, I found myself in an English composition class at Overton High School just down the road taught by a woman whose name was Roberta Dawes, Mrs. Dawes. I knew of her because she went to the church that I attended, which was fine except for one thing. My father was the pastor. And I think I realized that I would not be able to slide by in her class because our pastor would catch wind of it and there'd be trouble. I started going to her class and I noticed something different about Mrs. Dawes. She had a way of bringing words to life. It's been 40 years, but I still remember some of the books and short stories that she exposed us to. That year, I began to develop a love for literature and language and for her. She cared whether or not we understood. She often spent extra time with people like me. It was she who assigned to me my first dreaded term paper, and I still have it. I have it in a drawer downstairs. I've kept it for over 40 years because of what she wrote in the margins in red ink. I was used to seeing red ink on my paper, but this was different. This is what she wrote. You have real capability, and if you work on it, you might just develop a knack for writing and amount to something. <laughs> I didn't really believe her, but she believed it. And the words stuck with me. I went on to college and got an undergrad degree and went to Emory, went to get my master's in SMU to do the doctorate, and I'm still writing. In fact, for the last 36 years, I've been writing a term paper every week. I call it a sermon, and some of you still grade me. I still read and write every day and have the privilege to share those insights sometimes on the weekend. Six years ago, I came back to Nashville from Atlanta, and I was surprised to see Mrs. Dawes and Joe, her husband, who's here today. They've been regulars these last few years, so you might say that I've had the privilege of teaching my teacher. Even in a wheelchair, she had that contagious spirit, always positive, always encouraging. 
always grateful for words shared and words proclaimed. And then she went on to be with Jesus six weeks ago. I say all of that to you because because of her example, I understand today that the most important word is not the spoken word. It's the embodied word. She personified words like providing, caring, serving, encouraging, trusting, believing, and it was evident that she had been with Jesus. She didn't just speak it, she lived it, and when you live it, the unlikely becomes likely, and you enable other people around you not to do what we're supposed to do, but to do what we need to do for Jesus' sake. A good teacher is like a candle. It consumes itself to light the way for others. We have a teacher. We have a teacher. And we have a name for his teaching. We call it cross-training. <laughs>